we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. Hi, this is Stacey, the Babymaker Roberts, and I would love for you to join me in February, our seminar, Going From Unexplained to Pregnant. This seminar will help you assist more of your patients by providing you with practical, clinically proven advice on all aspects of unexplained fertility issues, and I can't wait to share it with you. I look forward to seeing you in February, and to register for this event, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the education tab. See you there. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donahue, a doctor of some 35 years practice, both in hospitals and clinic, of which 30 years he's practiced as an integrative doctor. And I'd love to welcome you back, Mark. It's good to be back again. It's been a while. Uh, it has, a bit of a hiatus. Your daughter has been married. Yes, in a foreign land. <laughs> and uh, I spent my time in Canada, as I like to call it now, and uh, wonderful time, really magnificent reminded me how good it is to be out in the nature what it does to breathe and what it does to feel good sleep get uh, just get back into the water and stuff when you're in a city it is so life denying after a while and so getting back there is fabulous that's actually that's actually a very good point because one of the other podcasts we'll be covering with Elizabeth Cowley is about nature deficiency mm. so I urge our listeners to have a listen to that one yeah, biophilia, this, this idea that we are born to be in nature and that the more we separate ourselves, the more the stresses and tension. We all focus on cortisol, we focus on everything, but the simple stuff of sleep, eat well, keep together with a family and get out in nature, they're so simple that we all forget it. And that's, that's the basic stuff of healthcare. Absolutely. Mm. And we're going to be covering that in a sort of roundabout way with regards to stress and, and how it affects our body, particularly one gland called the thyroid. Now, today we'll, we'll delve into thyroiditis, but my first thought is that the thyroid gland is one of the most inappropriately treated glands in the body. It's too often treated alone and without any or enough support for the effect that chronic stress has on the adrenals and other glands, like the sex glands. So, what are the most commonly presenting issues that you see in clinic, and how do these patients present? Yeah, I... I think it's regarded by doctors as a simple gland because, hey, what could go wrong? You give thyroxin, which is T4, the body will look after it. So if anything breaks down, the thyroid is seen in isolation, and it really is not. I think that the critical thing to remember with the thyroid is it's a type of thermostat for the body. The brain regulates part of it. Nutrition regulates part of it. It seems simple, but it isn't because it is interrelated with gut ecology and uh, inflammation uh, related to the kind of glutens and the DQ genetics. It's got so many interplays there. And we often see it as, 
well, the thermostat's turned down, so let's turn it back up without sitting back and reflecting, why is the thermostat down? If it's for nutritional reasons, we go nutritional. If it's that the body is heading into a type of hibernation state and this is an intentional turn down, then you do not just go and rev up a thyroid. The body is in a stable, lower metabolic state for a reason. And I think too often, even we integrative medicine practitioners just think, fatigue patient, I can rev you up. And we make the mistake of just going at the thyroid as if it is independent of everything else. So it's a tough gland to work right. And it's, it is um, very simple in appearance, very few tools to manipulate it. But you've got to get it right for people to get well. I've, I love the way that you talk about the functionality of the sickness syndrome and when people hibernate back and, and they just they don't want to do anything. They, indeed, they can't do anything because their energy levels are so low. But it's not because... Um, they don't want to. It's because they need to. Their body is yeah. doing it for a reason, to protect them. Yeah, and not just that. People have aspirations to be more active. Right? We all have that kind of aspiration. I want my mind back. I don't want to be in this hibernated state. But the wisdom of the thyroid, the, the fact is if you look at it, you often see that the thyroid is choosing the least worst state to be in. The thermostat is turned down not to hurt us, not because of any great uh, pathology, but because the alternative is worse. And you see that often as a practitioner. When you rev up the thyroid, you get to see all the things that were not going wrong because we turned down into that hibernating state. We still have evidence that mammals hibernate. This may sound crazy for humans because we don't see hibernation, but we live in stable environments. We live in houses. We keep our thermostats right externally so that our temperature is always up and we have high expectations. You look at a dog or a cat, if they're hibernating, they're just slow dogs and slow cats. They don't have aspirations for anything else. So to the practitioner, the person comes and says, I'm tired all the time. I just can't get myself moving. The first question is, if your first question is, well, we can fix that if you tell me what's wrong, then we're missing the deeper question is, why did you head into that state? Mm. And sometimes it's pathology, sometimes it's bad luck, sometimes it's diet, but there is always a reason that something is going on to push down into that state. And one of the commonest ones is stress, that when stress is raging and high and prolonged, it's safer to be at a low metabolic rate than it is to be at a high metabolic rate. Things go wrong less quickly. And so the thyroid will often turn down. You can pick it because the TSH is low. The brain's not asking for any more activity, and yet the person is in a low metabolic state. At that point, something's going on in the brain to turn things down, and we're, we fight against that at our own peril. We, I, I have often done this. I've mistaken the person and say, yeah, you need more energy. When we get the energy pathways up by managing the thyroid, things go wrong quite dramatically. And then we have to back off, start again, and answer the deeper questions, why did your thyroid push you down? So I've got to ask then... Uh, are the thyroid issues that we so commonly see in clinical practice these days uh, a chicken or egg? I, th I, think, I think you've asked the right question. I don't know how to answer it because to fail to do something with the thyroid, a thyroid gets into a stable state of hibernation, we do need to answer the other questions. What are the stressors? What are the dietary, environmental? Yeah. What are the other factors? But often what happens is the stable state of the thyroid is now really stable. And at the end, you've still got to give the wherewithal for the thyroid to re-establish normal metabolic rate mm. before the person will recover. So I see this a lot where you do everything you can for the person. Everything seems ready to take off again. 
but the thermostat still set a degree, one or two degrees below where it should be. And there's the point of intervention that at, when you have fixed the other things, when you have got the diet right, when you've got the stresses under some control, then there's value to turning up that thyroid and convincing your brain and your thyroid that a different metabolic state is better. And that to me is you've just hit the nail on the head because you said when everything else is right. Yeah. I, I think people too often go in, you know, they see a thyroid issue, so the thyroid's what we treat. And I think we could get much better effect if we actually looked at why is the thyroid in that state? Yeah. And um, I think even in integrative medicine, we miss that question. You know, we've got people demanding more energy. The person before you sees it as, I need more energy, and we think, what can river this person up? Mm. And it's very difficult to step that person back to say, until you have fixed these other things, that may not be the wisest decision. And so that coming back to the principles of integrative medicine is the foundations to build health. The foundation is to have a healthy person and then to bring them back into their metabolic state. And if if there was one reason that I asked that we do the thyroid, we've got all these websites acting as though it's only a thyroid issue. And if we just get the thyroid more active, everything is going to be okay. Mm, and so. to me, that's the, that's the opposite. That's mm. almost the medical approach using integrative processes to yeah. do the same job that doctors do. In doctors' territory, often we are fatalistic about the thyroid. If there's thyroiditis or if there's problems, the endocrinologist just says, well, don't do anything. And when it fails, we'll give you thyroxine for the rest, or thyroxine is the T4. Mm. And that is the simple state that most doctors fall into. They think, what can you do about thyroiditis? What can you do about low thyroid? You wait until it fails and then give the pill, which is the exact equivalent of the thyroid hormone, and everything will be right. And my view of that is that's a flawed, flawed approach when you can fix people and have them recover from these conditions. So when I made that comment about chicken and egg, you said stressors, and I was thinking stress, but I, I like the way that you said stressors because that it can indeed be diet. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's go through more of the, you know, talk about physiology, if you like, of the thyroid gland and, and the the archetypical mineral that we'd think of with the thyroid is iodine. Yeah. But it's not as simple as it seems. Um, what's your take on the safe use of iodine? Because there's some really disparate views on this. Yeah, I, I know that iodine deficiency is a thing. It's a definite thing. Professor Creswell Eastman has said and demonstrated this, and we have gone after iodine as if it is the only item, and it's really important. Iodine deficiency is common. In finding out about it, there's tricks. You know, we do our morning spot urines. They're not as accurate as we'd like, but we've got a fair impression that iodine deficiency is really significant, especially in pregnant women, people of childbearing age. We have an obligation as integrated practitioners Absolutely. to check their iodine and to make sure that they enter pregnancies, mums enter pregnancies with adequate iodine. And adequate means 150 micrograms for every pregnant woman, as set out by the 2010 January um, NHMRC guidelines. And, and Creswell Eastman has been frustrated with medicos not taking notice of this and not prescribing this for all pregnant women in Australia. It's the first time, apart from folic acid food fortification, it's the first time that a, a vitamin supplement has been advocated. Yeah, well, it's not just advocated, it's essential and you do no harm with those kind of levels. So what we always want in pregnancy is don't do any harm, do do as much good as you can. And yeah. iodine at, the, at least that level, at the you know 150 to a couple of hundred micrograms, will do no harm and will ensure that babies are born 
with adequate thyroid function and that we get out of this low function, the loss of IQ and the loss of brain function Mm -hmm. uh, in the next generation. So it's a really good investment. Someone who's thinking of putting their kid in private school at hundreds of thousands of dollars over a life could spend $10 and get a greater result by getting things right in the, in the pregnancy. Mm. So while it's important, it's one component. It's an obligation to get it right as a foundation for thyroid. Inadequate iodine will always make the thyroid gland struggle. However, people who have no thyroiditis, people who have no other cause of thyroid problems, the gland swells. We see goiter as evidence of iodine deficiency, and it is, but a healthy gland can cope with low iodine for a while, Mm. and an unhealthy gland does not. And so an inflamed gland, when it's got to work harder, it's like a sprained ankle. You work harder on it, there's more damage done. The iodine deficiency accelerates and accentuates a thyroiditis, and thyroiditis is becoming way, way more common. In my medical career, thyroiditis has escalated dramatically, as has thyroid cancer. You know, we actually have evidence now that when the thyroid is overstimulated, deficient in iodine, deficient in selenium, that you get thyroiditis turning into a cancer, and the rate of cancer increase is much higher. Now, thyroid cancer is not as dramatic as most other cancers. You know, we actually, the word cancer gets fear into everyone's mind. Lots of thyroid cancers can be left alone, a bit like prostate cancers, that plenty of thyroids have tumours in there because there's rapid turnover, there's rapid uh, production of these thyroid hormones, so unusual cells are not that uncommon. But we still have an obligation to try and minimise that. Adequate iodine is a starting point, but boy, the rest of it of not having thyroiditis stimulated, getting the gut and you know often the gluten components of the gut for that 20% of the population with the genes that respond to it, getting those right is way, way more valuable for the long-term recovery of a thyroid gland. So when we talk, you mentioned gluten, and that's something I want to delve into. Um, when you're talking about the... Um, uh, HLA, DQ, what is it? Uh, two and two DQ8. And eight. Two and eight, yeah. yeah. Um, when you're talking about those alleles, is alleles the correct term? Yeah, well, they're, they are the gene. We're actually assessing the genes, and so these are alleles, and they, you get pairs of alleles or matchups of these alleles to give the final, if you like, uh, definition, the DQ2.5, yeah. which is a pair of alleles. So, yes, the inheritances of the alleles, the expression of it is called DQ2, DQ8, DQ2.5, DQ2.3. And so you do get the feedback from the geneticist, which says celiac genetics. But this is not celiac. This is, you know, the celiac disease is limited pretty well to this genetic group, but it's still only 10% of that group whereas up to 50% of women go on to develop thyroiditis. So although they're called celiac genes, to me, the much, much bigger population issue is when you have any kind of stressors on the thyroid, the autoimmune disease of choice with those genes is actually thyroiditis. That progression of thyroiditis is stimulated probably in the early years of life by high gluten exposure in those early years when the thymus is trying to figure out what's enemy and what's friend, and there is just too much carryover. There's some evidence that the types of parasites and the types of bugs in the gut define which organ the immune system goes after at a later time. So Yersinia in the gut has a high correlation with thyroiditis. So there are multiple factors here, but 
When you've got 20% of the population carrying these DQ or DQ8 genes, it's not trivial. When you feed those people wheat, rye and barley in the early years of life, you have a time bomb set to go off 30 years, 20 years, 15 years later, and people turn up completely surprised that gluten had done them any harm way back in the past. So this is really interesting to me because the work of Dan Littman and Ivalio Ivanov uh, looked at segmented filamentous bacteria, a previously um, unculturable uh, bug that was in the gut, and it's a sort of a quasi-pathogen related to clostridia. But what it does is prime the immune system. However, if you haven't got enough good guys to keep it in check, then it will, if, if you have a genetic predisposition, it will upregulate interleukin-17 and may prime you for autoimmune disease. Mm. So I'm really interested in this whole start-at-the-gut thing. It seems to be scientifically validated these days. Well, not just scientifically validated, clinically validated as well, because you do, you do see this... The gut is full of bugs that would murder us if they had half a chance, if they were not kept in, in under control by That's other right. bacteria there. Yeah. So the gut's not that friendly a place. We talk of the microbiome as if it's a friendly group of everyone getting on, and it, it's more like the Middle East, you know, that everyone takes on their fights, they, they uh, fight for their territory. And one moderates the other in ways that we are just beginning to understand. This microbiome project, the unravelling of it is there are lots of fatal pathogens roaming around there. Why do they not attack? Because the entire ecology copes with those pathogens beautifully. Mm. And you could even say they're there to finish us off. At the end of our days, <laughs> something's got to start the little you know, decomposition process, and, yeah. and they're all there ready to go. We keep that balance, and it reminds me of Star Trek. You know, this is a, a this is a nuclear bomb ready to go off that you know is barely under control. You think of the gut, and you think of the complexity there. It is barely under control, but it is beautifully self-regulating. We introduce stuff like gluten, and we can cope with it. There was an advantage to having DQ two dot fives and uh, the DQ eight genes, and that is grasses do stimulate a strong immune response. What's good about that? Infection fighting. You know, there's lots of reasons to upregulate immunity, but if you turn it into the food you eat every day, if you'd have wheat bix every single morning of your life, then what was a very small stimulus that would do benefit now becomes an overwhelming stimulus to turn the immune system on at times where we would dearly love to turn it off. I think you've twigged something because I've been pondering on this for years. Why is it that grasses are the big allergens? And maybe it's got to do with uh, treating parasites or... Yes, and and the grasses, oh, I see what you're thinking. Your mind is amazing sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. You, you, have, you have those links. Yes. The, grass, the wonders the grass, of two coffees in the morning. The grass pollens are able to trigger strong allergic responses. We notice grasses and we keep, you know, a high proportion of the population is strongly reactive. You only have to look in springtime to mm. see what hay fever does. That reactivity we always regard as pathology. So we doctors see everything that's out of order as pathology to be fixed with a pill. We give antihistamines for that to stop the histamine release. We give immune suppressants when we're you know, in desperate straits. We, we try and turn on and off immunity as though we know how the regulation occurs. And well, I come back to this question, could we know better? I think Fasano's work mm. um, is going to be critical. When we look back on this century and say, what happened with thyroiditis? What happened with gluten? We'll be looking back and saying, who would have thought that a high percentage of the population could be switched into an autoimmune process by excessive 
antigens, excessive prolamines in these uh, in these glutens. And we've got he and Dave Perlmutter next year at the symposium. Fabulous stuff to get these guys together of what do grains do? What is the immune system doing? Where do these things play out? To me, this is the playground of integrative medicine. The doctors and the naturopaths who are going to learn that learn the basics of what question do you ask when you see a thyroiditis person, when you see a person whose metabolic rate is turned down, the first question is why. The second question is what do I do about that why? Mm -hmm. And then the third question is, and the thyroid we can turn up. It's not hard to turn a thyroid up. It's hard to turn it up and not do more damage along the way. We kind of step into that yeah, and yeah. often just make a mess of things mm. and then hand it over. And usually it's a herbalist who has to pick up the pieces and do something on the other side of it. And as you know, my weakness is in herbs. I keep referring to herbalists, but I don't have the competence that I need. One day, when I finish, One day. I'm going to be a herbalist. <laughs> I think it's much more interesting than medicine. And I might just point out for our listeners that uh, you mentioned uh, Alessio Fasano, who mm. is the discoverer of zonulin. And Alessio Fasano will be presenting at the 2016 Biocidical Symposium, along with uh, Dr. David Perlmutter. Yeah, I've read, I've read Alessio's work for years, and it does make sense. And what happens in my world is I read these things. There's lots of theories about why something's the case. I get a chance to test it out in practice. I do the gene tests. I have a look at the proportions. The the people with the thyroiditis, 80% or more, carry the genes that Alessio is talking about. And it's a really nice place to start. This does not mean, however, that all you do is take a person off gluten. That's a start. But these are not celiac disease. These are things that were triggered decades before. So we have to have a look at what do the grains do to gut permeability? Mm. How do we manage antigen not crossing the gut wall and getting into the lymphoid tissue in the, in the crypts of the gut and getting onto the liver? I now see a high proportion of people with thyroiditis showing up liver function tests, what we doctors call liver function tests, which are really liver damage tests, the ALT and AST. We see those off. We see them up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and everyone goes, well, there's no reason for it, so it's not an issue. The liver under load with inflammation goes into that state. It will turn into a fatty liver eventually, mm. and then doctors will pay attention to it. So the opportunity to see where the ALT and AST are right at the top end of the normal range in a young person should give us all a hint that something immunologically is going on in the gut, and we need to pay attention to it. Now, gut and liver do not have an obvious relationship with the thyroid, but thyroiditis is 50% of the outcomes of the women who have the DQ2 and DQ8 genes, way, way, much, way, way more than the 10% or so of people who carry those genes who get celiac disease. So medicine's focus on celiac is misplaced. We keep biopsying. We keep saying, well, we, you know, there's no evidence of celiac disease. We thought about it as though these were grains irritating the gut wall and wiping it out. And now we understand celiac disease is an autoimmune process that happens to happen in the gut. It's not an irritative kind of damage the gut by the grain passing by. It's an immunological response as real as thyroiditis or as real as diabetes type 2. So we need to be able to stop the risk of celiac disease, but it's a much, much smaller risk than the thyroid disease, which people carry on for years and years and years, and doctors do nothing about it. So maybe we should be testing closer to the gut. I mean, there's there's evidence, good evidence, that shows that increased intestinal permeability and the leaking of um, 
bacterial cell wall fragments, lipopolysaccharide, directly influences the development of NASH, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or non-alcoholic steatohepatosis. And there's fairly good evidence that without it, you just don't get the NASH. That unless you have inflammation, you don't have something triggering the process which sees the fibrosis, the scar tissue, and the other things develop as time goes by. So that, that idea of inflammation causing abnormal immune responses and leaving scar tissue behind happens in the thyroid and it happens in the liver and it happens in every organ that you look at. We should know that. And in fact, I've said many times, if you gave a doctor these days something, a magic pill, it would be something to control inflammation without side effects. Mm. What do we think of? We keep on thinking of the pills, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, steroids. We keep on looking at the sledgehammers to belt the immune system into shape. And I think we failed to look at the stimulus to autoimmunity, hugely um, misdistributed into this DQ2 and DQ8 genetic group. Mark, we're going to delve into other things that affect thyroiditis, but I just want to cover off a last point on iodine. When I mentioned about the disparate dosages used in thyroid, there's basically two two camps, if you like. Um, Dr. Guy Abrahams suggested massive doses, 50 to 100 milligrams, not micrograms, milligrams, and he based that in the view of another doctor, Dr. Alan Gabby, on erroneous data looking at Japanese people eating seaweed and a confusion between wet and dry weights, a conversion about iodine content. So um, certainly, like that is a massive dose. It is. And that's one that, you know, you would think that would, um, you know, you'd be using that in um, thyroid storm, if you like, to prepare for... Um, ablation, thyroid ablation surgery, the Lugol solution, the high-dose Lugols. Or when Chernobyl melts down or the bo- a bomb goes off, that we race in with high iodine to try and protect the gland, to shut it down intentionally. I have an experience with this because, as you would probably know, as practitioners, you give a person a couple of drops of Lugols, they start to feel better. What do they do? They keep on escalating it, thinking, I will feel better and better. And so I have had people getting up to, say, 50 drops of Lugols a day. It's a fairly big dose. Mm. It's up in those many milligrams, 50 milligrams or more a day. And the, sh- the thyroid does shut down all over again, but in a peculiar way. It's almost like a self-protective effect against poisoning. Mm. And so I've watched it happen. I am incredulous about the idea that we could go belting people with very high doses of iodine and do something physiological. There may be a drug-like effect, and it may be that's what we're seeing, is that there is just the same as a thyroid suppressive effect, which turns the gland off suddenly, gives it a kind of a shock, and then a recovery period when someone takes them off that high dose sees them improve. Well, it seems to be that. that I think that's called the wolf chakeoff phenomenon. And it... so that there is plenty of room for the kidneys to remove any excess. I, I watch yeah. it going in, watch it going out. We do the morning urinary iodine. And it, once you're seeing 99% of administered dose peed out, you probably don't have any great need to up that dose any further. It's just working the kidneys harder. Yeah, you've got a, a, a no AL or a non-adverse effect limit um, noted of 1,100 micrograms. Mm. Um, I, I, th- I remember, I think there was... 
in Japanese populations. Now, you've got to understand these are people who eat a lot of iodine, yeah. a lot of seafood in traditionally food. all the time. And yeah. so they're already prepared, but I think they can take up to 8,000 micrograms, which is obviously 8 milligrams, but that's way below this 50 milligrams and certainly in a population that's well used to it yes not as a shock I, therapy i'd stick to 1100 as an absolute max and only for a very short period of time i come back to a principle you and i have talked about many times don't adopt a different population's apparent response to something and say therefore absolutely. we are okay with it absolutely evolution plays out in long periods but there's a short evolutionary process and that is if you fail to deal with the high iodine and you don't reproduce, there's not many of those who fail to deal with iodine <laughs> left around to do it. And if you adopt that and you suddenly just cart that over to Australia, America or other other cultures, you may be going through a selection process that's not too different than that. It may be unhealthy for a significant number of people and healthy only for the people who are able to manage it. And, and I, I would just go, physiological issues should be paid attention to. How does the thyroid manage its iodine? How do we pee it out? If you're peeing out nearly all the iodine and the kidneys are working hard to pee it out, you've already passed the limit that that person needs. But iodine's not the only one. I mean, the the whole point of this, in my view, is re-establishing the normality of the thyroid is, while it's the last step, the selenium is ah. equally important. It is critical to the conversion of the thyroid hormones, to protection against thyroiditis, and to seeing people not have their glands removed at some future date. And so iodine's the headline, but selenium is the background, and it is it is so, so important if you see a person with thyroiditis to not believe the medical guff that all you can do is wait for that thyroiditis to burn out and then take the gland out, replace it, or just suppress it. If you go at that person with selenium, make sure the nutrients, the, the tyrosine, the iodine are available and that the selenium there is there in adequate amounts, there is strong evidence that you reverse thyroiditis and you preserve the gland. Mm. And if you, at the same time you're looking at the gut managing gut permeability, you've got a person who will go on with a slightly damaged gland but with normal function for the rest of their days. And saving that last 50 years of life with a functional thyroid is very worthwhile. And indeed, you, what you're mentioning there is a, a really good paper by Anne Drutel and others uh, published in Clinical Endocrinology in 2013. And it was basically talking about the safe and responsible use of selenium in thyroiditis yeah. and helping to manage inflammatory orbitopathy yeah. um, associated with Graves' disease and things yes. like that. So, But I caution practitioners that it was limiting, the, the doses in studies was limited to 100 to 300 micrograms. Yes usually 200 micrograms per day. It wasn't huge doses. Um, and I'm a lot more cautious of selenium than I used to be after speaking with Dr. Margaret Raymond, right. um, the, the basically deity of selenium research around the world. Selenium has a deity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but I, I think that's really used. And, and for an, an oversimplistic term, selenium seems to make iodine safer, dare yes. I say that, um, or it's, it certainly seems to rescue the thyroid yeah. and other inflammatory states. And it it is critical for the thyroid peroxidases and the glutathione peroxidases. What we need 
is a recycling method which allows for the iodine to be bound for the conversion to occur for T4 to be manufactured, manufactured and then the iodine separated. And it's got a lot of places to play, a lot of parts to play in that. But it is also basic tissue protection. Mm. The other thing is glutathionation and recycling of glutathione depends on adequate selenium. So when a gland like the thyroid runs out of its selenium, thyroiditis progresses very, very rapidly. The, whether you can cure thyroiditis with selenium, I think, is a separate question. But what you can do is prevent progression. And then in my clinical experience, over and over, the endocrinologist has said it will still progress and it goes backwards. You see the TPO and the thyroglobulin antibodies drop and drop and drop. And I've seen a patient as, as recently as last week where good naturopathic intervention with the selenium has seen very severe thyroiditis drop right down to a level where the endocrinologist is no longer bothered about it over a five-year period. I might just mention that paper for our listeners, and it's um, Drutal et al., selenium in the thyroid gland, more good news for clinicians. So please give that a read. And the reason is because it's a great there's a little paper. Great it's little paper great and there's a nice little table there that talks about the different glutathione peroxidases yeah. and their actions. Yeah. So, uh, so the, this is areas where research and summarizing that research is really useful to doctors because it gives you a dosage range. It leaves us not arguing about is it multi-milligram doses we're talking, or, or hundreds, thousands of microgram doses for the selenium. We're talking about what could be got from a really, really good diet, but is probably better supplemented. I thought it was also interesting that they felt that the sodium selenite, the, bio, mm. the, you know, the bioavailability yes. of that was quite sufficient, a nice, inexpensive way of delivering selenium. It's what we did in days past, and then we moved on to the more organoseleniums, the uh, glutathione precursors as well. So... I'm a bit dubious about it. I kind of grew up from using sodium selenite and thought I'll go more into the selenocysteine, selenomethionines. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe there is a nice inexpensive way, just like the drops of the um, iodine, yeah. that you could get those together. You can't really mix them together. In the you know, Iodine's an odd bloody you know, halogen to deal with. It binds to everything, including glass. So Lugol's is one. I tried to make variations of it. It's really, really hard to get iodine stable in a liquid solution. But if we use those, those are really good ideas about bringing selenium up, bringing, uh, bringing the iodine up, allowing the gland to function, and then still going back to look for why the gland was inflamed and why it was under-regulated in the first place. Um, just a note on selenium. It was, uh, Margaret Raymond, again, mentioned this in, a, in an earlier paper, I think it was 2004, um, Selenium in Human Health or Selenium in the Importance in Human Health, something like that, uh, published in The Lancet. But she talks about the different types of selenium, indeed selenite, and, and what she speaks about is basically that the selenite doesn't have to enter the enzyme pool, and so mm. it basically is more available, if you'd like. Yes. Um, however, the selenomethionines are quote-unquote safer, possibly because they're not as well utilised or yes. not as freely available. So it's it, it, it's kind of like a safer because it's not absorbed or, yeah. or yeah, well, it, usable. They both work out well, though. That's the other thing that is surprising. I mean, in the old days, well, it was right. use N-acetylcysteine, use a bit of uh, selenium. Things work out well. Mm. And it was blunt. We get more and more sophisticated about how we deliver these types of things to promote glutathionation. But at the basics, the body is really good at distributing whatever it's got available. I'd be really interested to see if the use of NAC in thyroiditis might help it. Yeah, 
I haven't seen much on that. No. I'm not sure if you have, but I've never looked. The NAC is becoming the big thing, isn't it? It really is turning up in you know brain chemistry and glutathionation of the brain. It's turning up in mental illness as a really important factor for uh, mental illness, especially in youth, where they will take that and they're maybe not so well dealt with with uh, drug therapies. So I have hopes that the combination, simple combinations, the NAC, the selenium, the recirculation and the recycling of glutathione is going to get more onto the orthodox medical mm. practitioner's agenda and not just be the domain of integrative practitioners. One little point before we move on to other things that you can use in thyroid is I just think it's interesting that we're, we're looking at these, let's say selenium, we used to think it's an antioxidant and what it seems to be doing is actually helping to make enzymes to be anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Um, and I think we've got to get away from that term antioxidant. I just think it's, we, we've labelled this electron robber yes. as a, or electron stabiliser as this be all and end all entity. It just doesn't seem to be working It that was way. good shorthand, right? <laughs> as how we understood things. And there's some really good researchers who say, look, um, oxidant antioxidant systems are so vastly difficult to regulate. The electron transport is all very important, but underlying all this, our clinical outcome is inflammation control. What we see as the, as the output, we call that must be antioxidant activity, but that's changing. I think what we're thinking of now is there are regulatory responses, receptors, there are, there are agents like glutathione that we want to see there in adequate amounts for protection. And there are stimuluses to pathology that we want to get out of the way. And when you match the two up, you up the protection and you down the inflammatory response at the gut or at the other levels, then you've got a really good outcome. The Lyme disease doctors get into this as well. You know, Lyme, everybody has Lyme or nobody has Lyme. It's a kind of, un, it's a, in a, we are unable to be able to understand what's true and what's not true there. But what is true is a chronic inflammatory response is going on. Whatever the stimulus, everybody has their own versions mm. of it, but mm. the protection is common to all of those. And I think upregulating the protective systems is what we are really good at with integrative approaches. And we'll get into that in a tick. First, just a couple of points I wanted to ask your opinion of. Um, other key nutrients that are involved in supporting the thyroid gland hormone synthesis, tyrosine and vitamin A. But mm. vitamin A has some very other interesting actions, a sort of yin-yang, yin-yang action with vitamin D in the gut. So tell, talk to me about the action of vitamin A with regards to thyroid and helping to manage that inflammation in the gut that might be the trigger. Yeah, I, I think it was Mike Ash at our last conference that really brought this up. Uh, we doctors, I think still think that generally nutrition is adequate to look after everything. I started measuring vitamin A levels in my patients with chronic inflammatory disorders like this after Mike said vitamin A deficiency is really, really common. Fascinatingly, the beta-carotene levels are perfectly fine in these people. And you even see some of them, they go yellow, mm. eating just normal fruit and vegetables, yeah, yeah. and the vitamin A is deficient. And so there's only been three months, but focusing a bit more on vitamin A, I am surprised at how common vitamin A deficiency is, even in the presence of beta-carotene in the diet and apparently good beta-carotene levels. But the two wings of joined vitamin A as beta-carotene are split in the yes. liver. And this, now we're getting into yep. the other glands and the other organs of the body that we should be supporting when we're quote-unquote treating yeah. thyroiditis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, the liver, I mean, we even have this issue with uh, vitamin D. We give vitamin D3, the liver converts it to, uh, to the 25-hydroxy vitamin yep. D. 
what do we measure on blood tests is the 25-hydroxy, and we get stunned. I'm giving 5,000 units of D3. If the liver isn't doing its hydroxylation, we keep measuring low levels. We shouldn't focus on the dose. We should focus on what is the liver not doing. Absolutely. Vitamin A produced from the retinoids is a really, really good marker of the liver not doing its job. And the consequence for that, again, is inflammation and the thyroid becoming less active and less capable of managing its uh, processes. So the four things, you know, in the past it was just selenium, iodine and tyrosine. You can give tyrosine at multigram doses and get a pretty good response because the precursors are there. You may even have a bit of, you know, a bit of a boost of dopamine and other things that go with mm. it as well. So people tend to feel better on higher doses of tyrosine. And, and CoQ10. Yes. <laughs> well, now we get into the problem that integrated medicine just expands into every available space. So yeah. now we're talking about the liver, the gut, the thyroid. We're talking about electron transfer. And that's the nature of the mess that we live in, is that we practitioners know this does this for my patients. But the good regimen of making sure the vitamin A is up to scratch and providing vitamin A, giving the tyrosine at really adequate doses and making sure that the tyrosine availability is high and focusing, to my mind, selenium and iodine are then the coup de grace. Making sure that we've got our gut right and inflammation under control and that the liver is not on that edge. Pay attention to the ALT and AST. If the ALT and AST are near the top of the normal range in a young person, that's not a normal range for a young person. And if you measure them often enough, as I do, and Medicare will keep telling you I measure them too often, you see them go out of range and in range and out of range and in range. It's not a stable state where Mm. the liver is happy. Mm. It's on that edge of not coping the whole time. I used to decry the naturopaths who would say to everybody, your liver's not functioning. We learnt the hard way in our environmental unit that all you've got to do is starve a person for a while, the liver falls over really, really quickly. The liver not functioning is critical to thyroid function. And so the gut, the liver are the precursors to thyroid treatment. The thyroid treatment itself then is a doddle on the other side of it if you know those four nutrients. Dr. Mark Donohoe, I I think what we're going to do is we're going to continue this podcast in a second series, a second podcast where we can delve right into the types of therapies that you use supporting the liver, the gut, and indeed the adrenals, which we haven't really talked about today, but we really need to. We have to close this off at some point, (laughs) so there is no end. You start with any organ, you will end up with the whole body, and that is the concept of integrative medicine and integrative health. So it's not unusual that we end up with a nice focus and then expand to fill the available space. So I'll invite our listeners to listen to part two, where we'll delve into the treatment and support of these patients. Specifics, that'd be great. Dr. Mark Donohoe, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure again, as usual. (laughs) This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.